Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Jeremy Hunt. Dr. Hunt is widely regarded as one of Australia's leading plastic surgeons, having worked with thousands of patients during his 15-year career. Dr. Hunt practices out of his rooms in both Sydney and Wollongong and offers a wide range of cosmetic procedures, including but not limited to face and neck lifts, breast augmentation and body contouring. Dr. Hunt is the spokesperson for the Australian Society of Plastic Surgery and supervisor of plastic surgery training at Sydney Children's Hospital. Dr. Hunt is also a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. Good morning, Dr. Hunt. Morning. How are you guys? Oh, we're well. Very well. Thank you for coming at very short notice. Oh, no, my pleasure. My um, pleasure. So just so we've addressing you correctly from the beginning, you prefer Dr. Hunt or Jeremy or how? what's your preferred... Uh, how would you like us to address you? I think if I'm known for one thing, it's sort of the relaxed informality of things. So much better with Jeremy than Dr. Hunt. I feel uh, we can talk to each other on a first name basis. So Perfect. let's go with Jeremy. Perfect. Morning, Jeremy. Morning, guys. Um, I just want to start off by saying you're practice manager. Oh, my goodness. So efficient. <laughs> so efficient. I've never come across someone that's just so good at communicating, so good at getting back to you, trying to organize this with you. So just wanted to give her a shout out. So thank you. Uh, she this was organized in about 12 hours, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, we. Uh, I, I learnt well in well in my training that the key to success is surround yourself with good people, and then you let them do their job, and you can do your job. So she does a very good job of keeping my day on track. So, so excellent. So well, if you're listening, that Lee, now's the time to ask for a pay rise. <laughs> <laughs> that that will come, no doubt. Um, now, Jeremy. Our listeners who may not know you, because we are now officially global. Yes. Uh, we have listeners all over the world. Um, can you just give us some idea of uh, who you are, how you came to prominence as one of Australia's leading plastic surgeons, and what does your practice currently offer? So uh, I'm, a, I'm a Sydney boy, born and bred, so I do love the city, so this is definitely home. I did my general surgical training years ago and then got a bit of a bit of exposure to plastic surgery and just sort of fell in love with the sort of the work that it does. So I did my training here in Sydney, uh, member of the College of Surgeons, finished all my fellowships, went across to the States for about a year and a half, did some training over there specifically in what they call craniofacial surgery, which is one of the subspecialties that works on children with facial birth defects. Yeah. So that was a, uh, that was a good experience. And then when you're working with those guys at one of the best hospitals in the States, that tends to attract some of the best aesthetic surgeons. So the best facelift surgeons was one of my mentors and that's where I picked up the techniques that I now use in my practice. So right. I've been running my practice for about 15 years. I still have that emphasis on working at the children's hospital and then a big leaning towards aesthetic type practice. Fantastic. So your specialty would you say is facelifts or do you offer other broad plastic surgical techniques as well? So I tend to offer a, a, a bit of a broad spectrum. I, uh, I'm well trained in a lot of areas and I with this, with the training I've got, I don't want to box myself to be almost a one-trick pony so yes. that I can offer people, and people are often interested in, I want to have a facelift, but I also want to have this at the same time. Yeah, holistic so, approach. So for me, I can really offer my patients all the procedures they're looking at. I can then potentially offer their kids the procedures and I can offer their grandmother the procedures so that uh, for many people, once they meet me, it's a case of, you know, the office phone number's in the bottom kitchen drawer. Someone, <laughs> yeah. someone needs something, they just call me and then I can usually come up with some sort of solution for them. Yeah. And that's a, an interesting um, approach because I guess we, we're in a world now where everything's so 
sub sub specialized where you know we had someone like dr shahidi who yes. basically just focuses on a particular kind of rhinoplasty so it's interesting talking to different surgeons in terms of some people that just want to hone in on yeah, something and then they absolutely. do little, little bits of everything so so i think there's, there's needs out there for mm. those subspecialty surgeons but then there's needs for people who want to you know consider doing more than just one procedure and in, in a combination yeah why did you choose plastic surgery because oh, I, like I used to do general surgery and i loved it what, what was wrong with general surgery nothing was wrong with general surgery it was just <laughs> uh you know you know, in, in your surgical training, you do a lot of on-call and it's late at night and you get called down to the emergency department. And I just, uh, you know, remember one day being on call for plastic surgery and, you know, one of the, you know, a young kid came in who'd managed to sort of lose his hand in a work-related oh. accident. And, uh, you know, he said, he said to me, you know, there's hand in bucket on end of bed, you know, can you put it on, Doc? And I'm like, oh, I'm not entirely sure. I think I'll call my boss. Mm. So, you know, 14 hours later hand is back on again and that's a 15 year old boy and that was the point where i just went love it man this stuff's insane yeah this stuff's great yeah so plastic surgery it takes you it takes you through microsurgery it takes you through treating kids adults it takes you all over the body uh, and it's based largely on principles so there are solid principles that you then apply to often quite complicated situations so there's a lot of thought process behind how to treat patient patients yeah so it's not just sort of cookie cutter type and you treat surgery. the whole body as well yeah so we can be doing one thing one day and then doing something another day so it opens up the ability for your practice to have a lot of diversity which yeah. keeps diversity keeps things interesting for me that hand get all of its functionality back or was there some just i'm just curious <laughs> oh, yeah. so the point i decided this is when i'm going to do it was about six months later i was down in the rehab gym and uh literally someone from the end of the gym turns around and he's like hey doc and this guy turned around this kid just puts his hand up and sort of moves all his fingers and i just went that's cool oh, you're killing me this is this is the best rock star moment and that was when i just went I'm in. I'm hooked. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. And then here we are. <laughs> Jeez. Now, I think a lot of people assume that plastic surgery is just the glamour, the, the cosmetic side. Mm. But how does a plastic surgeon in the public system learn the cosmetic side when they're not doing that day-to-day -day in their training? How, how, did, how do you learn that? Yeah, we get that? We get that question a bit. So it's almost like a... Uh, it's almost like an apprentice in any any trade. You will start off initially watching one of the, the masters do something. You will then be allowed to do simple, relatively straightforward stuff. And in terms of the public hospital, there's a big grounding on reconstructive training so that by the time you're finished your training, you are well grounded on reconstructive training. You know all the surgical principles. And then it's a case of where you decide to apply those principles mm. and you may stay in a reconstructive field. But to get the exposure to train in aesthetic facial type, facelift type surgery, you're probably going on a fellowship somewhere quite often overseas to see some new techniques. Yeah. And then that's where that skill set sort of evolves. And then some surgeons will decide to take that path and other surgeons might take a hand surgery path others take a pediatric path and we all sort of find ourselves finding our our niche area of interest and uh and away we go i think we've seen that with our other surgical colleagues they've sort of it's like a finishing finishing school isn't it pretty much is you, you sort of much learn is. your basics and then you choose your area of subspecialty yes or super specialty yeah so um, i think the cosmetic industry has just exploded so quickly Oh, um, yeah. it's almost hard, hard to, to keep up with all the new procedures and who's doing the surgeries and different. I guess what I wanted to ask you as well is um, when you're overseas, did you notice different kind of trends or aesthetic um, biased or different ways that surgeons would approach things as opposed to the way they would approach them here? For oh. example, we were speaking to a doctor who was saying that he did some study over in South America mm -hmm. and what people thought beautiful looked like over there was different to what they thought it looked like here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a big it's a big global village and in different parts of the world there'll be different aesthetic appeals. So that uh, so the South Americans are very body orientated, uh, they prefer a female figure that's smaller busted, bigger bigger behind. Uh, the Americans are more busty orientated. So my 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 overseas training was largely in the states and um, <clears throat> the one thing I did pick up was 
A few things I picked up is that Australian surgeons are amazingly well trained. We're very respected by our American colleagues, which is great. The other thing that it sort of taught me was that the Australians tend to take a more subtle approach to things almost, so that the results that we see in social media or in magazines of, say, facelifts from the United States are probably a little bit heavy-handed yeah, for the Australian palate. We've got some questions about that later. Yeah, <laughs> so that uh, I think we tend to take a more, you know, certainly in my practice, my philosophy is that you know, my, my patients want to be noticed for the right reasons, not mm. for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So sometimes less is more. Yeah. And you want to just create a, an, a natural, effective outcome without an overcooked result. Yeah. I guess that's a, a bit of a cultural difference overall between Australia and America. Everything oh, is bigger, louder, yeah, absolutely. more out there. So I yeah. guess it would make sense that would translate across to surgery as well. Well, having said that, I mean, when I reflect on maybe just injectables in Australia versus maybe mm. the Europe and UK, even Australia seems more bold and um, adventurous compared to some of the European mm -hmm. uh, trends, which are very, very subtle. Um, I don't know if that's a new thing or if it translates to plastic surgery. Like, would you say surgery in Europe is even more conservative? Or I'd say that's probably true. I think the the Europeans are very conservative. I yeah. think Australians are great. They're they're great adopters. Yeah. So the highest rate of you know mobile phone consumption per capita in the world, Australia, you know the highest rate of you know adoption of injectable fillers and anti wrinkle injections, Australia. Yeah. So that the Australian population is always keen to absorb new concepts and trends. And I do think that has led, as you say, to a very big increase, quite a rapid increase in the rate of consumption of procedures. People are far more au fait with what's available and far more open to, you know, giving things a try. Absolutely. Penny mentioned that as well when she came from, so we interviewed uh, Penny who used to work for Allegan, mm -hmm. who's a cosmetic nurse and she used to work over in Harley Street in, in the UK. And she was saying when she got to Australia, just the, as you were saying, their willingness of Australians to adopt yeah. and, and, and have a go and, and try things and experiment and, and really get involved. With. So I guess that's in, it sort of translates across to surgery as well. Definitely. Um, Jeremy, so you're also the spokesperson for the Australian Society of Plastic Surgery. Can you just tell us what that society is and, and what is your role? So as, as surgeons in Australia, we're all members of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and then that's sort of our governing body. Uh, but within that, there'll be surgeons who who are orthopaedic surgeons or ENT surgeons. And then our section of plastic surgeons, we have the Australian Society of Plastic Surgery. So that we're, we're largely members of that and it sort of has a code of ethics and it provides us a forum where we can sort of keep up to speed with trends. There are teaching sessions and conferences. And then there'll be times when, you know, media will ask for a comment on something. And in the past, I've done quite a bit of commentary for the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons. Sure. And, you know, that's a that's a privilege to be able to sort of speak on behalf of, you know, the people you work with. Yeah, that's great. And uh, did you have to be voted for that? Or how does that work? How did you oh, get that role? I, th I think it all sort of just sort of fell into place. It pushed you into, into the limelight. Well, I think it just sort of fell into place. So, you know, a number of years ago, some the pendulum of, of reality TV tends, I'm told, to swing between food, romance and medicine. <laughs> okay. So that, uh, you know, a while ago there was shows like Good Medicine and then it swung towards plastic surgery and then I found myself, you know, doing procedures that got filmed and then it got onto a television and then you get a little bit less intimidated by yes. the camera so that then you can think about what you're saying as a message as opposed to being startled. And I think that's how I got put in front of that yeah. camera for the society just to make sensible comments at the right time. Brilliant. Yeah. So um, I guess we get onto the meat of the facelift, conversation, which yes. is facelift surgery. What is a facelift for people who've never heard of that or don't <clears throat> quite understand it? So a facelift for a lot of people is quite a uh, quite a daunting term. So <clears throat> when people come to see me and they they're considering a facelift, and it will it will usually be that they've hit a point where they're getting up in the morning and they're looking in the mirror and they're seeing someone that they don't think is them. Mm. So on the inside they're feeling some some way, but on the outside they look in the mirror and they go, "That person is just not me," and they're 
trying to come up with a way to sort of reflect how they feel on the inside, which is quite often invigorated and youthful, but what they're seeing in the mirror is, you know, a version of their mum or their dad. Yes. So there are two real options for rejuvenation of the face. There'll be the non-surgical option, which is going to involve the injectables. And then there's a point where that tool is not powerful enough to achieve the result people are looking for. And then they're looking at a surgical option. So that a facelift really, for me, goes from really from the collarbone to the top of the top of the head and it'll involve assessing neck it'll involve assessing face and then eyelids and then for some people they'll have a specific part of that area that needs to be treated so they may just need a neck lift or they might combine eyelids with neck lift or neck lift with facelift yeah so it's all it's really about assessing people's needs assessing people's you know goals expectations and then you tailor a surgical procedure to get the people what they want with the minimum hassle maximum safety and then minimum downtime. And again, it's all about, so for me, it's so much about not changing the way someone looks. It's more about making someone look their best. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that. And that's in- a common theme, isn't it? Oh, yeah, across everything. But it's interesting how the the procedure, facelift and breast augmentation have become the two procedures that are synonymous with cosmetic surgery or plastic surgery as oh, opposed to all the yeah, stuff that you've absolutely. done. Everyone goes, plastic, you know, facelift, oh, that's plastic surgery. Like it's just become that that procedure that everyone sort of Absolutely. thinks about. I mean, if you, if you look at a lot of the Hollywood Hollywood <coughs> movies, you know, if if you're looking at a comedy, then something yeah. like a breast augmentation or a facelift is something that will appear as the token representation yeah. of plastic surgery <laughs> and it will be overcooked and overdone and yeah. everybody knows and it's, that that's what they are. It's almost like it's become the procedure that everyone thinks, oh, that's I don't want to look like that. In, in some ways, yeah, it's become the procedure that's synonymous, but in a bad way and a good way, because I think that people go, oh, that, that's a bad facelift, or I don't want to look like that, or it's... And it's the yeah. same as injectables. Yeah, of course. I don't yeah. want to look like X and Y celebrity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've done it too much, there's too much filler, et cetera. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's hard to point out the, posi- the, the good examples you because don't you don't them. notice yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those one or two bad examples just become the pedestal for that Absolutely. is the result. Absolutely. And, and, and as you say, it's like um, you don't want to notice the good yeah. result. So for me, a good outcome is when when one of my patients maybe walks into a social function and everybody looks at them and they look like they've been on a great holiday. Yeah. You've lost weight. You've been on a great holiday. You've changed your hair. What have you done? You look fantastic. And they're getting noticed for all the right reasons, but not the wrong reasons. Yeah. And then, you know, the internet's very, very powerful tool, but it'll always show the best of things and the worst. Yeah. And the worst of the worst is what often gets pushed on the internet. And it's interesting because a lot of clients will turn around to me and presumably yourself and say, I don't want anyone to know, but I think what they mean is I want them to know the good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that they yeah. do want people to yeah. know, I don't want to look but freaky. they just don't want yeah. people to point the finger yeah. and say, what have you done? Yeah. That's want, the difference. They want to be noticed, but they want people to be too scared to come and ask them. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's often what I find. Um, is there a difference between a facelift and a mini facelift or is a mini facelift just a, like a, a, a slightly less invasive one or how, how would you describe that? I, I, I do tend to think it. So a mini facelift will be, if you, there's, there's really a full facelift that might involve a neck lift, facelift, and eyelid surgery. Okay. And then a mini facelift might just address a component of that. So it's going to be a less invasive procedure, less sure. downtime, less recovery. But if it's the right procedure for the right patient, it will get the result they're looking for. Yeah. So you really do pick apart the components of facelift and just identify which one is going to suit a patient's needs. Yeah. So terms like mini facelift are around, lower facelift, upper facelift, and it's all about just customising the procedure. Seeing what's in front of you in your consultation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and just to finish the topic, what is a neck lift? What do you actually mean by a neck lift? What is happening? Okay, so so for a neck, a neck lift will be, for me, really any surgical rejuvenation that's sort of below the jawline. Yeah. So that quite often, you know, with time, people can de- develop, you know, a split in the muscles of the neck that'll create that turkey, the turkey gobbler. There'll be people with, you know, too much fat in the fat pad underneath the chin or there might be loose skin so that for me a neck lift is going to be trying to rejuvenate the muscles the fat and the skin of the neck yeah whereas a facelift is going to be more about addressing the the fat pad that sits up on the cheekbone yes that when it drops it will get deepening of the folds around the nose deepening yeah. down turning of the corner of the mouth and and jowls yeah 
and then the two quite often go together. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so could you basically take us through what actually happens in the aging process that takes us to a point where we need a facelift? Yep. Um, and then I think, you know, that might explain where some of the limitations may lie in terms of what can be achieved with injectables or, or when it gets to a point where you go, you know what, like Jake might turn around and go, look, I, I, I don't have the capacity or the skills to get to give you the result that you need. You need I've to never go said and that, have I? <laughs> <laughs> to I'm get joking. to get you to that point, you need to go and see, you know, yeah. Jeremy, Doctor yeah. Hunt. I, I have absolutely no doubt Jake knows when the point is. You know, <laughs> I've got the wrong tool. We need to move to something yes. else. I'm going to so, have you on speed dial, like all your patients. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, well, <clears throat> so fa facial aging for me really comes down to two things. It's going to come down to a loss of volume and then descent of tissue, so that. In a certain, so in a, in a certain age group, maybe be in the 30s and the 40s, uh, the primary problem is going to be loss of volume, and that's where fillers are going to be a great tool to achieve the outcome patients are looking for, because it will address their concern anatomically. Then there'll be a point where there'll be descent of the tissue in combination with loss of volume, and it's really that descent of tissue that needs to be elevated that is the tipping point for moving to a surgical rejuvenation. So then a facelift is going to be a procedure that's designed to you know, re-elevate tissue that's dropped, restore volume where we like to have volume, uh, which is classically up on the cheekbone, not down around the jawline, and then it potentially, you know, it's a aging is a field change so that when the when the face ages perhaps the neck has aged as well perhaps the eyelids have aged as well and then it's just identifying those concerns of patients and putting them together to come up with the single procedure that gets them the outcome they're looking for in terms of aging is that or sorry uh, the face getting to a point where it needs a lift, do you think that is only due to age or what are the other factors that cause that to happen mm -hmm. in terms of, I don't know, yeah. stress, lack of sleep, genetics, sun exposure? Yeah, you got it. You okay. got the lot. Right, <laughs> Basically, okay. anything. You know, if we all lived in a plastic bubble with no ultraviolet light and we never had a late night and a good time, then uh, we'd probably be done sight better. Yeah. But um, emotionally, we probably wouldn't be. <laughs> so that, you know, life has wear and tear to it. So the Australian sun is particularly harsh and ultraviolet light does damage elastin fibers uh, and the elastin fibers are like the they're like the elastic in your in your tracksuit pants you know once that elastic's gone everything heads south so that uh, Australian sun does do a lot of damage so combination of in aging process you know sun exposure and as you say lifestyle smoking is particularly bad for your tissue over mm. time and all of these little things add up and then there will just be a, a genetic component where some patients just start to literally look like look like their mother and they think this is not who i am mm. and they're then looking to try and not look like well not be their mum almost um Stress seems to be a factor that's overlooked by a lot of people or sort of, I don't know if people are able to reconcile in their own mind how that actually affects the aging process. But I've seen people that have gone through horrific things in their life, like someone in their family's passed away or mm. they've gone through their business has gone bankrupt and they just seem to age oh. almost overnight. They've got like they've gone in a time machine and they're ten years older than what they were yesterday. Yep. How real? How real is that? That stress was that oh, when you lost your hair? Or? Yeah. <laughs> I shaved it off before it fell out. So it's always always a good move. <laughs> Thinking ahead, Jake. It's yeah. cool. Acceptance, not denial. Yeah. I, th I think it's very true that you know stress stress is sort of this very difficult thing to quantify, but it certainly you know has an adverse effect on 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 your body. It's it's draining, and then it's interesting you say that overnight people think they age you do actually age in sort of chunks so that you will age about every five years you will age so that you can look in the mirror one day and you'll look great and for the next couple of years you'll look great and then over about a three-month period you'll have this aging process happen so when you then look in the mirror you're like oh my goodness what just happened I look five years older and you do you look five years older and then it's a funny thing because now you'll hold that ground for another five years and then you'll have the next chunk. So quite often it is the that that little aging process that tips people to the point of going, that's it, I've had enough. Yeah, it's interesting in the injectable world and 
I don't know if you see it in the plastic surgery world, there's a tipping point of around the age 30 where most people notice small little things have changed. They might get a little hollow under yep. the eye or the cheek's not quite as full. And that's when a lot of people come in and say, hey, uh, maybe I'm going to start exploring fillers or mm. something else. Do you notice that with plastic surgery? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me that that tipping point is quite often a close to the age of 50. 50. So for, for women, the age of 50 is almost a, a point where they're still – they're still physically very active and uh, they're still professionally very active, but there's an aging point where they, they look older than they, they, look older than they, they feel. Yeah. And they're looking to, you know, like, like all of us sort of capture the, capture the vitality of youth. Yeah. Uh, and that's the point often too, where that change happens, where fillers are not going to be the tool to get them what they're looking for. Yeah. So they're stepping towards surgery. Speaking of, um, you, you were mentioning uh, uh, women there. Do you find that there's a difference between the way a man will age and the way a woman? We didn't have this written down, so sorry. No, 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 that's right. This this I just thought of it on the fly. Yeah. Do, do men and women age differently? Well, I think, yeah, they do. So that uh, men classically are far less inclined to look after themselves in their youth. Right. <laughs> so in terms of sun exposure, men are far far worse than women are. So men's skin will not be as elastic. Uh, men's, you know, tended to have in the past, tended to have a high rate of smoking so that their skin will be and their elastin will be more damaged. So they're, they're a totally different operation and they're looking for something different as well. So the, the, tr the trap is to apply the same surgical technique that you would in a woman to a man because that's going to feminize a man and that's not what men are looking for. Right. So there really is a, there's a, a male facelift and a female facelift and right. they're going to be very different type okay. of procedures. Interesting. Would that be about sort of not making the cheekbone too high yeah, and having absolutely. a squarer jaw, et yep. cetera? Absolutely. And then men, it's quite often, as you say, not so much about the, the height and fullness of the cheekbone, but it's more about the jawline yeah. and then the neckline because, you know, strong, strong jawline, masculine, high cheekbones, probably more of a feminine aesthetic. Mm. Yeah. And you've, uh, again, in terms of the aging process or the aesthetic that you apply, does that differ between ethnicities as well? I guess in Australia, we've got such a melting pot of people from all different parts of the world. Do you find that you'll aesthetically approach things differently depending on- Yeah, absolutely. So though I do think, uh, you know, if you take the Southeast Asian population, they are far more sun sensitive aware than the Anglo-Saxon Australian population. So when they come with an aging problem on the face, it's usually less less significant in many instances than the Anglo-Saxon population's problem. So they'll need a different procedure. So there are a number of different facelifts. It's not just a one one operation suits everybody. It's about individualizing people's sort of needs, what their goals are, and then getting the right procedure to get the right result. And it is, a, it is, it really is a spectrum that will range from the non-surgical treatments through to potentially surgically restoring volume, be it with fat transfer or needing to suspend tissue with a number of different facelift techniques. One thing that crops up quite a lot in the injectable consultation is that, you know, you'll get someone maybe in their 50s, same as what you just said, and they'll sort of say to you, look, I could start this journey with injectables or I could just go for a facelift. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be this sort of sat on the fence of um, they don't really understand what is appropriate for them. And obviously, you know, we can try and guide them. But it seems that a facelift is almost seen as a one-stop solution for aging. Yes. And not necessarily being appropriate sometimes. Yeah. So at what point do you think injectables and surgery fit together? Because presumably you'd use fillers if they're still volume depleted after a facelift. Yeah, absolutely. So... I don't know if you can give someone sort of like a flow chart of this is when you should go and see you yep. and this is when you should see an injector. I think, I think it's one of um, if there's descent of tissue, if, there, if tissue has dropped, then fillers will maybe struggle to resuspend and elevate that tissue. Yeah. And maybe that's where people have seen those images where people in the States or maybe Hollywood stars have tried to resuspend tissue 
with using fillers mm. and they've just put so much filler in there that they look like a chipmunk and yeah. that's not a good outcome. So that's the case where maybe I think they needed to consider a surgical path. Mm. But I definitely do. There's a, there's a role for fillers before surgery. Yeah. There's a role for fillers after surgery yeah. because they're two different tools and they'll achieve two different outcomes. Yes. And it really is about it's just getting the right tool to get the job done. Yeah. I mean, there's a concept that, you know, I've learned called the MD codes. I don't know if you've come across it. It's sort of a, by an American, sorry, a Brazilian plastic surgeon, Maurizio de Mel. Mm-hmm. So he talks about using filler under the, the SMAS layer, which is the sort of the muscular layer of the, of the face to mm-hmm. sort of reinflate it. Would you think there's any evidence that that that's something that you can use or, it's very subtle, and and at some point you're going to need a scalpel. I think, I think when it comes to restoring volume, in in my mind, it's um, going to come down to how much volume you need to restore that volume. Yeah. So that in a filler might come in a one mil or two mil syringe. Yes. And if you can achieve the result you're looking for with that one or two mil syringe, then that's a great great tool to use. Yeah. But if people are reaching for maybe four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of those syringes, yeah. then maybe that's not the path of least resistance. Maybe there's another way to achieve that goal, and that might be with fat grafting, which yeah. I do use in facelifts. Because of more volume. Yeah, because of the volume's available yeah. uh, and it's reliable. And then the downside, of course, to that is that it really is a surgical procedure. Mm. So we're off to a hospital or we're off to an operating theatre that has, you know, its downsides. Yeah. So there'll be, there will be a tipping point. Um, and people do quite often explore fillers to the point of going, you know, it's been great, but it's just not doing, doing it for me the way it used to. Okay, fair enough. Do you find that if people who start on the non-surgical procedures first can delay the need for surgical intervention? I, I, I mean, I do. I think the non-surgical tools will address some of the concerns that would lead someone to consider surgery so the the real trick is working out when it does address those concerns to the point where that's the limit of that tool and then it's time to jump across the surgery i think for a lot of people it's basically comes down to the budget and the risk doesn't it It, yeah absolutely facelift quote me if i'm wrong might be 20 to 30 grand something probably yeah that's probably fair whereas even if you threw in I don't know, 10 mils of filler, that could be under five grand or around that mark. So for some people, they're like, I'll give it a go. Yes. If it works or if it's pretty good, maybe I'll stick with the non-surgical because I can just walk into a clinic and go home. Doing a facelift will come on to, you know, the, the downsides and, yes. and the risks, but it, it's a much bigger leap, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's where for patients, they will usually have explored the filler option. Yeah. And I'll certainly encourage them to explore that option. Yeah. And then in their own mind, they will come to the conclusion that it's time yeah. <clears throat> to consider. Because it, it is a big, it's a big decision. It's, yeah. a, it's a big procedure. Yeah. Um, what about the laser side of things as well? So in terms of, mm-hmm. obviously, we've spoken about toxins and, and fillers and how they, how they can help. But in terms of things like resurfacing yep. or collagen stimulating lasers, mm-hmm. do, you, do you work with those at all? Or what are your thoughts on how they sort of fit into everything? Yeah, I, I think they're very, very beneficial. So I, I honestly, I, I tend to tell my patients that um, surgery, surgery for a facelift is almost like making a bed. It's you, the resurfacing techniques like a laser will basically flatten out the, the doona on the top of the bed. And if that's what it needs, that's what it needs. If you're needing to get down to the deeper layers, then surgery is going to be about taking the doona off the bed taking the flat sheet off the bed, getting the fitted sheet tucked in nice and tight. And patients often talk about a layer called the SMAS that you mentioned, which is one of our sort of anatomical layers in the face. So you then, you're fitting, that you've got the fitted sheet organized, you put the flat sheet back on top and that's really the fat layer. And then the doona for me is almost like the skin. At the end, you stand at the end of the bed and you flick and the doona lands on the bed beautifully and Mm. the bed is made. So there'll be a point where the laser's great for resurfacing but it won't address those deeper layers and that's where surgery needs to come in and then equally surgery will address those deeper layers but it won't address the things that laser will Mm. and patients often need you know a good skincare program they need to consider some sort of resurfacing be it chemical peel or or a laser to address the texture of the skin so so surgery will address the structure the deep structures and then resurfacing techniques will address the texture Mm. So 
picking that analogy just a little bit deeper. I like that analogy. That was good. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get more technical. <laughs> um, what anatomically is happening when you do a facelift? I mean, not to get too gruesome, but what is happening? What are you doing? Oh, let's stick. Let's, we'll just stick to the bed analogy. It's really quite simple. So there's different layers for facelifts, and then different layers will achieve different results. Mm -hmm. So. Most people will be looking at their skin and they will stand in front of the mirror and they will pull their skin up and back and they'll go, I need a facelift. Like the two-finger facelift that someone... Yeah. Absolutely. I just Absolutely. need this doctor. Yeah. Or, or the hair pig. Yeah, yeah. To tie the hair back in the high pony. That's another way to get around the problem. But you can't do that, can you, David? No. Keep rubbing that in. <laughs> I'm, I'm catching up, don't worry. Sign of high testosterone. That's what <laughs> yeah. I say too. So people will people will see the skin as being the solution to the problem by pulling on the skin. But, you know, there is a skin-only facelift. The problem is skin tends to stretch. So I say to patients, just, you know, you think about a pregnant woman's tummy, you put pressure on that tummy, that skin will stretch. Mm. So what people can do in front of the mirror with two fingers is maybe the objective they want, but it's not going to last the test of time. So a skin-only facelift top layer notoriously has recurrence rates mm. as we go deeper down we're into a layer called the smas layer and then we can go deeper down again into what's called the deep plane which is underneath the smas layer where literally you're picking everything up moving it and then resuspending it okay so that's probably the most in my hands that's probably my most effective operation uh, in terms of you know the the result they're going to get and the, then the longevity of it people who who are thinking about surgery often are at the point where they're like i'm Fillers have been good, but I need to redo them. I'm looking to do something that's definitive. Yes. And then a well-done surgical rejuvenation, you know, in my experience, is good for 10 years. 10 years, okay. So I'm, I'm hoping to take photos of patients before their operation, and then I'm hoping that in 10 years' time, and I've been around long enough to have these patients come back, that I can take another photo and that patient is looking better 10 years after their facelift than they were before. And that's an important point because people need to understand the face will continue to age Absolutely. forever until you die. So even a surgery is, well, it's as definitive as you're going to get, but your face will still change. Absolutely. Because we're all still out in the sunshine. We're all still getting UV exposure. Yeah. And that, that damage that we've all done to our skin down at the beach as kids is an ongoing process and that's where you really do need to maintain the texture and quality of your skin with you know potentially resurfacing a good skincare program and that also is where you know fillers and you know anti-wrinkle injections will have a role yeah because surgery won't address all of those crow's feet and frown lines yes because it's not the best tool yeah yeah what are your thoughts on uh, threads I'm not wild, I'm not wildly keen. So I do think when people, I think they, f they fit in, they fit into the spectrum of um, a minimally invasive option. But for patients who are looking for facial rejuvenation, they're maybe not looking, they're looking for a long-term result. And the outcome from threads, in my experience, just hasn't stood the test of time. So patients who are looking to do something that, will last more than six months probably in my hands are looking at a surgical rejuvenation and not necessarily the threads procedure and like you said the thread is going to deal with the dermal or the skin layer but not the deeper layer absolutely so yes. you're almost sort of papering over the cracks yes a little bit and to me again it's like that it's like you know the pregnant woman's tummy analogy if the force is on the skin then the skin is just going to let go yeah and so patients are often you know, disappointed by the outcome they'll get with threads. And again, I think it's picking the right tool to get the patient what they want. Absolutely. So what happens to the extra skin or, or the excess uh, stuff when you do a facelift? Do you literally sort of trim around the edge and put it in the bin and then stitch it back? Or Pretty much. <laughs> That's pretty so, much what happens. So lit literally what happens. So so in my, in my experience, people will often stand in front of the mirror over nighttime and they will put the two fingers in front of the ears and they'll put the thumb underneath their jawline. And people will know that to get the look they want, the face is going upwards and the neck is going backwards. With an excess. So the, the excess skin that they see bunching in front of their ear on their hairline, that is what disappears. So a facelift is an upward lift for me. 
uh, and that skin will disappear where the incision and the scar is, which is usually just on the on the hairline and down in front of the ear. Yeah. And then a neck lift will be the skin gets sort of swept more backwards. Mm-hmm. So it's going backwards and upwards behind the ear. Yeah. So that incision's up behind the ear, then down on that hairline. And if they stand in front of the mirror and they think, you know what, I just moved my, my finger or my thumb three centimetres, then there's going to be three centimetres of excess skin that literally does get removed. Yeah. And then, uh, then that's where it gets closed, where the incision and the final final scar is going to be. Yeah. I mean, we sort of alluded to this earlier with the Hollywood sort of look, but it, was that just an, an older style of operation or is it an American style where they look like they're in the wind tunnel? Uh, so, a, <laughs> so I've got a few theories on that. <laughs> so I do think that uh, sometimes less is more. So for my patients, pulling pulling as tight as you possibly can is not going to get them the best result. It's going to get them that something looks overcooked. Yes. So there's a point in a facelift where I'm vigilantly watching the corner of the mouth. And if the corner of the mouth is starting to move, then that's enough. And the problem is that in some American instances, they think a little bit more and a little bit more. And then the redo of the redo of the redo, people are just getting distorted. And then I was talking to talking to one of my American colleagues and I said to him, you know what, why why is it you guys have got such bad results? How did he take that? He took it he took it. Yeah, yeah, he took it pretty well. (laughs) He took it really well. And he said well, I've asked, he's from California, so he's in, he's in LA, and he said, I've asked myself that same question, and he, he knows enough, you know, movie star celebrities that he then went and asked one of their managers, and he said, it's really simple. Most women know 10 to 15 other women, so they will talk to each other. Mm. But if you're a high-end celebrity in the States, you don't have that network of female friends to find out where to go so you usually go to your agent and ask your agent who are you going to send me to and the agent will be sending them to one place who maybe is creating a certain look that everyone else is looking at just thinking what were you not thinking at that point yeah I guess it's a bit like the the Hollywood white teeth. It it just oh yeah, it's not normal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my my analogy of the hand in the cookie jar. Sometimes, if your hand's in the cookie jar, it's time to take your hand out of the cookie jar. One's enough. Don't, <laughs> just don't keep going. So, can you take us through what a typical consultation process would be like for? Yeah, absolutely. So someone someone will book to have a facelift, and I know that when they have, they've probably done some research online, which is which is very very helpful. So you know, I hire the internet's a great tool for getting information, great tool for getting misinformation. But patients will come in, and for them, it's a big decision, and what they're looking for from me is going to be information and understanding and then potentially you know surgical procedure so we will we'll sit down it's quite uh, it's quite relaxed uh, there'll be you know a handheld mirror and my first question is going to be you know when you look in the mirror what is it that you don't like because it's not what i don't like or what i see that necessarily is what my objective is. My objective is going to be to address the patient's concerns. So for me, first thing is establish what the patient's concerns are. And then we'll talk through a lot of diagrams and a lot of drawing and we'll talk options and options will be non-surgical options and options will be surgical options. And then there'll be a point where I will offer an opinion as to which tool I think is the right one to get them their result. And then we will look at some similar cases so we'll look at some before and afters and we'll identify things on people that that patient identifies on themselves and we'll be able to say well we change that aspect to this result with this procedure and then hopefully the patients walk out the door you know one well informed they have an idea which which tool is going to achieve which outcome for them and then they consider which path they may want to go down. So it's not, and that's that's the first consultation. And the first consultation is really about education and picking the right procedure for the patient. Then they, they'll be given some time to consider that and then the financial implications are presented to them and they will then decide if they think they want to go down that path and then we'll step to another level where there'll be another consultation where we'll go into a lot more detail about you know what's going to happen 
at the actual procedure, how the procedure is done, what what to expect in terms of follow up, and then we'll touch on you know the pros and cons of the procedure. And I'm at that point, I'm really sort of double guessing the patient to make sure that they have a clear understanding of what to expect as an outcome, hmm. because I don't want to take anyone on a surgical journey where at the other end they they say to me, "This is not what I thought was going to happen." So if that is if that happens, that's a failing on my part. So for me, it's very much about open disclosure, presentation of expectations, and then I'm looking at the end to achieve a patient who's happy with their happy with their result. What are the downsides, the complications or things that can go wrong? Yeah, so the, the, the downsides are going to be that, well, one, we're off to an operating theatre, so that's going to take some time out of your, out of your day. There's going to be a recovery from that, so you're probably looking at a couple of weeks off work. There will then be, you know, potential implications for who's going to look after the rest of the family. Uh, there's various other things people need to consider. Uh, and then there's probably a time before I say to my patients that it's probably going to be six weeks before you're walking into a room and taking, you know, landmark wedding type photos that you want to put on the mantelpiece for the rest of your life. So those patients, you know, that's a downside. People need to find that time in their busy lives to, you know, consider surgery. And then, you know, all surgery has potential complications. So patients do need to consider that this can this can happen in the most skilled hands to to any of the patients. And then our job is to make sure that those chances of that happening are absolutely minimised. So if people are considering surgery, my advice is you need a well you need a fully fully trained surgeon, fully qualified surgeon who's doing the procedure in a fully qualified facility, and that way you're minimising the chance of downsides. And then in terms of complications, I think I honestly I think about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So good in my hands has a certain you know percentage up into the 90s bad are going to be fiddly little things that are a pain in the ass but they're going to get better so there are things you know like scars aren't as good as we want them to be but we can address that with a scar revision there is potential for infection and small little things that are part and parcel of surgery and then there's there's honestly what i describe as the ugly and those are the things that we really can't let happen so any anesthetic carries a certain risk to it but we need a good anesthetist so we do so those things really shouldn't be happening there's potential in surgery and everybody's different so different patients will have different risk profiles so you need to identify those you need to get your patients off smoking that's one of our high risk things so patients then contribute to their good outcome and then we tailor procedure to manage those different patients be them diabetic or they've got heart problems to get them a good outcome without complications because we know those complications are there and they they can be significant so, and we do not want that to happen what are the um i know everyone says don't smoke everyone knows it's bad for you but in terms of a recovery process what what is the what is the reason for i guess insisting on that yeah yeah so it's it's one of those, the contents of a cigarette, which largely are nicotine and about, you know, 200 other chemicals that are not necessarily good for you, uh, tend to shut down blood flow right. so that, you know, people who smoke will know that on a cold winter's morning, they'll have a cigarette and, uh, you know, their fingers might go white. That's because the contents of the cigarette will shut down blood flow. So after surgery, we're relying on that blood flow and tissue to heal things so that patients who smoke before an operation will have less blood flow. Patients who smoke after the operation will have less blood flows, a higher chance of complications, higher chance of wound breakdown and, you know, significant complications. So we, we want patients, the research suggests that we need patients off cigarettes for four to six weeks before an operation and then definitely off cigarettes for, you know, minimum two weeks, probably six weeks after an operation so that they can get the best outcome. Which is easier yeah. said than done, I guess. Well, it's very hard. And it's not just cigarettes. The problem is it's the nicotine. So it's great telling your patients to stop smoking, but they reach for a patch. We're still in the same boat. Yeah, right. Well, they reach for gum. We're still in the same boat. Or a vape. Boat. Or yeah, or the vape. vapes that contain nicotine. Yeah, and there's lots of different things out there. Yeah. So it really does come down to, you know, Champix is very helpful uh, and then all the other modalities to get people off smoking and nicotine. Yeah. Yeah, which is bizarre because we live in this world now where we're more aesthetically conscious than we've probably ever been before, but I see more young people smoking yeah. <laughs> than ever before, which is, is yeah. crazy when you... It really so. is. It, in um, 
in the best hands possible, like yourself and the best sort of operation, what is what does the recovery look like? What, how bad is the bruising? How bad is the swelling? How many nights in hospital? What's the pain like too, I guess? Yeah, and the yeah. pain as well. So the, the, the nuts and bolts of a facelift. <clears throat> so done done properly which means we're in my hands we're going to a real hospital general anesthetic uh you're going to be asleep for a number of hours after that you will wake up you'll be in hospital for one night there see the internet's a great thing but it's always going to be the best and the worst of the world so that you're not going to come out black and blue your those photos on the internet are, are not what your average outcome should be so sure. there, so there's going to be a degree of swelling there might be some bruising but it's bruising that will resolve over about a week. So I'm mm-hmm. telling people that for the first week, you're going to be wearing a post-operative compression garment that's honestly like a, a lycra chin strap, like a to keep swelling down. Yes. You're probably not going to leave the house for the first week. Mm-hmm. Uh, in by the second week, we should have swelling that's improving, and we should have a little bit of bruising. So we all know that a good bruise on the thigh will go the colours of the rainbow, but by about a week, it should be a yellow greeny tinge. That's mm-hmm. where we're at, and that bruise is often low down below the collar line. Uh, but you're still probably not going to be comfortable to go back to work. So you're probably out of the loop for a good two weeks. By the time you go back to work, you'll still look a little swollen. You may not want to see your best friends socially, but it's almost like, you know, my hay fever is playing up horrendously today and I'm look, I'm a bit fluey or, yeah. you know, I've had a little bit of dental work done, so I'm a little bit swollen. Mm. So by two weeks, you're probably back in the workforce. By six weeks, you're probably walking into social functions and people are looking at you going, gee, you're looking good. And do you use dissolvable stitches or do you have to have them removed? So there'll be places where we'll use dissolvable stitches and places for st- stitches that need to be removed. So so classically, dissolvable stitches, great idea, don't need to be removed, but they probably create a thicker scar. Yeah. So that, say, behind the ear where it's difficult and into the hairline, we'll often use dissolving stitches. Okay. But in front of the ear or anywhere on the face, we're going to be using stitches that we need to remove because ultimately the, the scar is going to be a better outcome. Yeah. And that review and stitch removal is within the first week or so? Yeah, so that's probably at about five to seven days. So classically, it's one night in hospital. I'll see the patients the morning after. They'll head home. There's a nice instruction sheet. There's contact details. There's various pain medications. And then when you ask the patients how painful it is, it's not so much painful. It's more a stuffy sort of fluey feeling, that feeling of heavy pressure. I'm just tight. I just Mm. feel stuffy and sinusy. And that settles over about a week. Okay. So we'll see them at a week. And then by a second week, they should be back out the door. It's interesting because when we were talking about the nose, I think that if I'm wrong, he was quoting almost two years for a full, full for everything to settle. Yeah. See, why is there so much disparity between a facelift and, say, a rhinoplasty in terms of that final result? So I think in in the nose, and I do I do agree, it can take it can take at least twelve months to see the results of a rhinoplasty. Is that there's really no so a rhinoplasty? If you think that the result is going to be what the bone and the the cartilage under the skin is shaped to be and then the skin is the you know the sheet that's thrown over the top there's not much buffer between that skin and that cartilage so that any swelling in the skin is going to be very apparent and swelling in the tip of the nose from a rhinoplasty can take can take weeks and months and in in some thicker skin types up to years to resolve fully whereas in a facelift we've got a little bit more buffer Mm. so we've got a little bit more soft tissue padding that probably allows that swelling to clear away a bit more quickly Mm. how common is it that a patient wakes up and at six weeks says sorry jeremy I i don't like it it's not it's not what i thought and what do you do about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, 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 uh, what, what we do about that is we sit down and have a good long, good long chat about, you know, where, where we derailed in the communication process. Yeah. So honestly, I, I've, I, hand on heart, I've never had that happen, uh, which is very reassuring. So it's very important patients know what they're going to get in terms of the expectation. Yeah. Um, in the, in the event that that does happen, uh, there's, there's usually some, option to try and there's usually some get out of 
jail plan to try and reverse those adverse changes, like there will be if patients do get complications from surgery. If patients don't get a good outcome, then there potentially are revision options to try and, you know, get the best from that outcome. Yeah. Um, And the approximate cost, I mean, you don't have to tell us exact, but I think we said... 20 to 30 uh, broadly? Probably. So I think that, uh, you know, if patients are out there looking looking at options, they need to consider that the cost of the procedure is really going to come down to you know, the surgical cost as well as the anaesthetic cost. There'll then be operating theatre costs and hospital costs. Yeah. And then putting those four cost elements together, I think that that, that number's not, not unrealistic. Yeah. And then there'll be... You know, a spectrum of prices based on people's experience, uh, how how long the procedure is going to take because yeah. operating theatres tend to run on an hourly rate. So, and then everybody's going to be different. So one person's, as you mentioned, mini facelift may have a certain price point, but another person's full facelift, neck lift and eyelids will have a different price point. Of course. So I do, I mean, I recommend patients usually... They need to do their research. They need to, you know, I would suggest, you know, ensure they're in the hands of a well-trained surgeon who's doing it properly and then often get a second opinion. And uh, if it makes sense and it sounds logical, then that patient is on the right track. Mm. Now, moving on to a little bit more on non-surgical, just to sort of finish off the topic. We we touched on fillers, Mm -hmm. a few of the other modalities. Do you have any thoughts on PRP? Or I think you already alluded to fat transfer. Where do things yeah. sit with what you offer? So, so all all of these things are going to be adjuncts to a surgical practice. So PRP, I do think has has value. I think it has benefit. So PRP is an abbreviation for platelet rich plasma, and it, it's going to involve patients, you know, giving some of their own blood in an office, just like a blood test that is then spun so that the plasma and the platelets are extracted, and then they're used as an injectable to sort of rejuvenate and encourage collagen. Yeah, and then the evidence is that it does it does have a beneficial effect so for me in my practice it's a good tool it's a good non-surgical solution to some patients problems yeah or it's going to be a good non-surgical adjunct to just put the icing on a surgical outcome yeah so it's going to be a subtle yeah so prp is great fillers are going to be great resurfacing is going to be useful and that can be with chemical peels and i think one of the most important things is uh it's going to be a good skincare program so there's there's a lot of evidence that you know taking sorbeline from the chemist will do one thing yeah taking products the medical grade that only doctors can get access to with maybe yeah. higher active agents in the longer term are going to be beneficial in terms of the texture and the quality of the skin yeah and these patients you know they've invested they're heavily invested in a good outcome they're invested financially in a good outcome yeah and you almost need to maintain the quality of that surgical outcome with ongoing good skincare. What does that look like a good from your perspective? What does a good skincare regime look like? So for me, uh, you know, I've got a bit of an academic practice. So for me, it needs evidence. I need evidence-based medicine for absolutely everything. So I'm looking for, you know, a trial where they've taken 100 women, 50 got a pot of something, 50 got a pot of something else, someone independently has assessed the outcomes at the end, and then they unveil the pots and go, well, this obviously makes a difference. And then those medical-grade agents are probably going to have higher rates of alpha-hydroxy acid and glycolic acid and retin-A and all of the terms that people know are bandied around, but then they're put together in a certain combination and cocktail that means that they work well with minimum downsides and that they're at a, you know, financially viable price point that people can use them. Mm. So there's different ranges that different doctors will sort of probably favour and they're all going to be better than something that has come from, you know, come from Oil of Ulan or come from, you know, Factor Q or whatever the latest one is. Well, I I guess not only that, but... Presumably having had a consultation with yourself or one of your therapists, they will be guided as to what uh, 
you know, cosmeceutical is appropriate for them rather absolutely. than just grabbing it off the shelf in David yeah, Jones. Absolutely. Which is half the problem, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it is all about getting the right product for the right skin type. We we do classify bif- different people into different, there's grades for skin types mm. and then that will steer us down a, a treatment path and it is very individualised. Now, yeah. if you're looking at a crystal ball into the future, yeah. Um, what do you think it looks like for cosmetic surgery? I guess particularly in relation to facelift, there's a lot of um, talk and excitement around things like stem cell, which is still very, yeah. some people think it's great, some people aren't too sure. We're hopefully going to get a specialist in who who's, uh, can talk to us a little bit about that. But mm-hmm. if, what do you think it looks like? And where do you think these sort of treatments sort of, uh, what, what can they what can they offer? And Yeah, where are we going? Mm. I think, you know, the, the one of the beauties of medicine is that it's just ever evolving. It's just ever evolving. So that every, it's, it's always about trying to improve outcomes for patients with minimum downsides. And I think as we go down that path and we look back at surgical procedures, we're getting better and better at refining the surgery to get the results we're looking for. But the aging process is so much at a cellular level mm. that I do think into the future, the answer will be at that cellular level, that there will be breakthroughs in, you know, technology that may well be related to stem cells that will sort of slow the aging process or somehow reverse some of the aging changes. And that will, that'll open another door for another treatment option that we've got just to make sure patients are getting the best, the best outcomes. Yeah, it's pretty exciting when you think about how far we've come in the last 10, 20 years and oh. what it's going to look like. We seem to be advancing at an exponential yeah. an exponential rate. It's crazy exciting. Would it really is. Um, agree that even in your own practice that the non-surgical um, volume is increasing? Oh, absolutely. So the preventative rather than the curative yeah, sort absolutely. of angle is is probably the way forward i think people people are so much better informed so people are informed as to the availability of surgical options the availability of non-surgical options and then the importance of prevention prevention better than cure so i mean once upon a time you wouldn't walk around and every every young woman's got a two-liter bottle of water but hydration of the skin is important and people know that and they're invested in getting a good result in 10, 20 years' time. Yeah. Um, Fine. Now, one last question, which is quite interesting. We discussed body dysmorphia at length with one of our other experts. Mm -hmm. Um, That was mainly to do with no surgery because she works with... Yeah, well, she thinks she works with a lot of um, surgeons in Sydney in terms of, you know, surgeons that might identify people that have got other issues going on, especially in this society where you've got selfies, everyone's got a camera on their phone. It's just, <laughs> it's changing the way we interact with each other, the way we think about ourselves. And then um, inadvertently then affecting the way people, I guess, present to you or why they're coming to, to people such as yourself. Mm. So does body dysmorphia play any part with facelift or is that more overt as to why someone's in your consultation room? And body dysmorphia is definitely out there, and uh, for a lot of for patients who have it, it is it's a really crippling, crippling problem. Mm. And then the solution to the problem is is not surgery, and that's often part of the problem is that patients may feel the solution to the problem is surgery, but the solution to the problem is going to be through psychological or psychiatric treatment options. So that when I have patients present who who tell me that they want to look like the best version of themselves. I feel we're not dealing with a patient who with body dysmorphic syndrome. But when I have patients who want to change something significantly about their appearance, they want to look different, then my my radar is maybe twigged a little bit. Mm. And then there's a series of, you know, questions and protocols that I'll then ask those patients to then identify that, you know, maybe surgery is not the path they should be on. And I'll ask them to see someone who's an expert in body dysmorphic syndrome, because I'm really trying to, trying to avoid the patient having a bad outcome. Mm. Of course. Yeah. And I think that um, could be something that is a pitfall, I guess, for uh, for uh, junior surgeons or surgeons that are newly graduated. Is, is you know you've got these. I think uh, I think it was Dr. Shahidi was saying he 
when you've got all these skills, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Or yes, yes. You've got these amazing set of skills that you've been honing for years and then you come out and you've got to set up your practice and it's, it can be very difficult to sort of know which patients to say no to or to identify which ones you shouldn't be operating on or that maybe need help from someone else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that is... Uh there's an old adage in surgery that the good surgeon knows when not to operate. Mm. Um, so you definitely don't want to be operating on absolutely everybody. And there's often those, those pressure to do that operation will come from different directions. It will come from yourself personally wanting to, you know, run a business, use your, use your skills. <laughs> yeah. It'll then come from the patients who want this result. So that in my practice, and I think, you know, one of the guidelines from the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons is that everyone needs two consultations. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, there's a certain cooling off period between initial consultation and surgical procedure so that everyone can just sort of step back, have a second think about things and then make sure that everyone's on the right path. Yeah. So final question, David kind of already mentioned it, the social media and the selfie. Mm. How does that benefit your practice and how does it detract? Or make things more complicated. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think I think that the you know, the whole social media situation puts an amazing amount of pressure on young people to look the part. So there's a statistic about the number of photos that a young girl will take before she posts that one selfie. So that's just pressure. Yeah. And then due to that pressure, maybe people are presenting to us at a younger age group looking for solutions, be them surgical or non-surgical. And then certainly there are procedures that are evolving, you know, the selfie facelift because everyone's looking down at their phone, uh, addressing folds in the neck. So it's changing our practice. Um, and it again, it's just about being cautious about making sure you've got the right tool for the right person with the right expectations. Because mm. a surgical procedure would potentially change an aspect of your appearance but it's not going to change your perception of yourself and it's not going to change your life yes so that it, it's not the golden fix uh, and if it's not going to fix the patient's problem then it's not the right tool yeah agreed so how do people get in contact with you if they would like to have a chat or have a consultation yeah it's it's fairly easy so we're very we're sydney based so there's an office in in sydney in edgecliffe and i'll consult sort of regionally in the illawarra area uh, the phone number is a sydney phone number and then that's easily found on the website website's probably easiest so the domain it just www.drjeremyhunt.com just dr Jeremy Hunt, mm -hmm. no dots, dot com. And then from there, there'll be contact details and there'll be a lot of information about a lot of the procedures we do. And there's certainly, you're able to send an email inquiry and we'll get back in touch with you. Um, are you on social media at all? Or? Yeah, so there's a, there's a Facebook page, there's LinkedIn, there's going to be an Instagram no page. Yeah. Let us look up Dr. Dr. Jeremy yeah, Hunt. Dr. Jeremy Hunt, they'll find us. And then make contact from there is probably the easiest. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. That's oh, been my pleasure. Amazing. Oh, you guys have been great. You're very well informed. This Thank is you. this is good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs>